Good morning. Um, I usually like to um, start the message with some kind of silly story about what Brian's done this week or some dumb thing that I've said. But uh, this morning, I really want to dive in. Um, I want to just dive in. I'm excited about what God's given us to share. So I'm ready to give a word and um, say you're ready. Tell me you're ready. Good. This is uh, kind of a good place to be saying those words, I'm ready. This is a good place to be with God. You know, you swing your legs out um, in the morning and you sit there for a moment and saying those words, I'm ready, tells God that you are actually open-handed and I'm ready to move where you're moving and I'm looking for you. I actually had a um, uh, conversation with somebody this past week and I said there is a difference between expecting God to speak and hoping God will speak. There is a very big difference about that, and it will ignite your Christian life if you become expectant that God wants to speak over you and wants to speak to you and not be hopeful of it. The wringing of the hands. I didn't make good choices this week. Not sure how God feels about... God wants to speak. God is speaking. God wants to. There's a big difference about that. God gave me a word this week, and I want to share it with you and it's going to kind of throw us into what we're talking about anyway. Um, but I think it will be a blessing to you. Um, the word God spoke to me this week was, um, you don't have to do this perfectly. You don't have to do this perfectly. That's so freeing for me. Because I grew up um, in a very stern household. Um, very authoritative father and who I love and God has healed us and I just I love 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 my dad um, but it was very difficult at some points and so there was there was always something about it that I wasn't doing enough and when we want to sincerely walk with God and keep in step with God and have a relationship with God and say I'm ready God there is an open door for the enemy to plant seeds of condemnation he comes in so subtly there's only 10 minutes of prayer. You know, some people pray longer. How long is your devotional time? You should probably be a little bit longer. Did you do enough? These kind of things just get floated out there, and suddenly on a bad week, you just start accepting some of this, right? And you start, and it starts bleeding into different areas. I'm not as good as a father as I want to be. I want to be a better husband. I'm not as good at my job as I think I can. And it just starts to, to eat through us, this condemnation. And we bite down on this fruit. And we forget the words that are spoken over us in Ephesians that says, because of what Jesus did, he has brought us into the very presence of God. And we stand before him holy and blameless without a single fault. That's something the enemy wants to attack and separate from us all the time. Because there are many, many moments in our lives where we feel seriously flawed. And you know what? We just finished Genesis in our one-story uh, journey together, and it's a Jerry Springer show, isn't it? This is a mini-series, and there's nothing but flawed people in Genesis. And that's, it's a good thing in that it helps us see that these people are no different than us. And you see how God dealt with them and the love that he had over them. Um, I want to expound on something that I said a couple of weeks ago. Um, in passing, and it's, it is so important for us as believers to see ourselves in the story. 
And there is a big problem when we don't see ourselves a part of the story. What happens when you go see a movie and you can't really relate to what's happening on screen, or you don't really care about what happens to the people on the screen? A lot of times that's bad writing, but suddenly you start pulling yourself away from the story, right? I don't really care what happens anymore. I don't really care about the characters anymore. You don't see yourself in the story. You don't feel yourself with the characters. It is a big deal. Um, if we, as believers, don't see ourselves in the pages of this book as far as Abraham was flawed, I'm flawed. Look what God did with Abraham. If these things don't start to connect with us, this becomes nothing more than an inspirational story. A Reader's Digest is really what this is. Inspirational stories that sits on the, on the cupboard, sits on the coffee table, it gathers dust, right? It becomes nothing more than this. It's what they tell kids in Sunday school with the flannel graphs. <laughs> Anybody ever have flannel graphs growing up? <laughs> they tell the Bible stories. That came to me this week. Yes, so that's all it becomes. But think about this. When you hear testimonies of people that tell of things that God is doing in their lives or healings or things, seasons that God has, has moved them past, what you're really doing is continuing the story that's already been written. It's already going on. God is still doing the things he did in the Bible. He is still doing it. A lot of Christians now are not expecting like they were in the Bible. That God can still do the things. It's so important for us as we go through this book to see ourselves as part of this story. That it's not done. That God didn't write the story and then retire to Fort Lauderdale and I'll see you guys in a couple thousand years. Didn't do that. It's still happening. But there is a danger, a very, very big danger, when we don't see ourselves as part of the story. When the pulling away starts to happen. Or it was never there in the first place. Um, more and more a part of our uh, society, our young kids, because Michelle and I work, or Michelle works at uh, a Christian school and we work with high schoolers and I help her with middle schoolers. And more and more we're seeing that these kids um, are floundering. Christian kids even, but more so kids, and I say kids, I mean teens to 20s are floundering right now um, because they don't see themselves as part of something greater. I, I've told you this, guys, before, but when I was at Disney and I, would, I was working with a bunch of 20-year-olds, I would often ask them about their lives, and the subtle undertone was, I don't know really why I'm here. When they were honest, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know. I feel like I'm taking up space. And that's so frightening when you go through life like that. Remember the Mark Twain quote I said? The two most important moments in a person's life is the moment that you were born and the moment that you find out why. So many kids are walking through life. So many people are walking through life saying, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not plugged into something greater. Let me throw some stats at you guys. 2019, the CDC survey says that one in six kids, this is kids in mid-teens to 20s, have thought about suicide. One in six. The Journal of American Academy of Children and Adolescent Psychiatric reports that there are now more kids than adults that have anxiety and depression. More kids are struggling with anxiety and depression than adults are. The CDC reports that 13% of the population are now using antidepressants. That doesn't sound like a lot. Well, when you take a country of 330 million, 13% becomes a little bit more. 
To give it even more context, that's the entire state of Texas and Illinois combined are using medication to get themselves through the day. 40% of homosexuals have thought about suicide. Next time you feel the quick trigger to judge the homosexual community, think that almost half of the amount of homosexuals that you see hate their lives so much that they want to think about taking it. Suicide is the greatest cause of death for kids now. Kids, 20-year-olds, late teens, then car accidents and illness. It is a serious, serious issue. It was said a long time ago, and I agreed with it then, that there used to be a time when we could just pray over our kids. But that's no longer. We have to war for our kids now. We really have to do battle for our kids and for the young people. What is happening? What is really happening? What is going on in society now that the fraying is happening, that we're seeing it? You know, when we were growing up as kids, didn't you, wasn't it all about wiffle ball and Atari and growing up and going outside and just... Now, the kids are on medication for depression. Who is pumping this into the society? The press is doing a very good job of pumping fear and hopelessness and anger into our society. And the kids are on nothing but their devices. They're drinking this in. Our society has become very handicapped now. Michelle and I, as I said, work with a lot of high school kids. And we see a lot of their Instagram posts. And it's amazing what they're posting, knowing that adults are looking at it. Teachers are looking at this. But we're seeing there are girls that are half-dressed. Christian girls posting this stuff like what but if you if you don't judge this but you look underneath it what you see is there is a great cry to be seen to be valued there is something that's missing now for our kids they don't feel a part of something greater they're not plugged into this they don't feel it this is what happens when we take god out of society this is what happens when we take god out of government we take god out of our schools and we tell them, you do what you want to do. That's what society tells the kids. Truth is what you make it. And what happens is you take the rudder off the boat, and now kids are just floundering through life. It's frightening because these kids become adults, and nothing changes, and then they flounder, and it's just walking through life, and they seek something to fill in the hole. Sex, drugs, whatever it is, I need to fill this ache inside me. And there's no answer that's been given to these kids now. Unfortunately, it's not just kids that are feeling afraid, the feeling like, I don't know what story I'm a part of. It seeps into, unbeliever, or into believers as well. It really does. It might not seem as dramatic, but it does. How do you get there? How do the believers really get there? Let me show you something. It can be so subtle. Someone that loves Jesus and loves God hits the skids. Whatever it is, loses a job, loses a marriage, suddenly it goes sideways. And suddenly they look and they think, I don't really know how this applies to me anymore. I don't see myself in this story. And once that seed is planted, I don't really know how personal God is. 
I don't really feel that he cares about me. I've been praying about this for a long time and nothing seems to change. And when that seed is planted, it moves on to, I don't even know if there's a God. And then ultimately is, I don't even know why I'm here. And the Satan settles, it's so subtle how he plants these seeds. And it's reinforced by what goes on in society and what's told on college campuses now. A branch of this that happens to more believers and it's more readily acceptable or, or attainable is this. I've made a mess of my life. I've made bad choices. I still believe in Jesus. It's not that I question God. But the next step is, I don't think that what I've been praying for, what I always hoped for, is going to happen. Because I've just gone sideways for too long. God has got to be tired of this. That's really what is going to be talking about, what we're going to be talking about with the gentleman this morning. I can't be in the story anymore. There can't be any way. We ended the book of Genesis uh, with Joseph last week. Um, such an amazing story. We closed the book on Genesis, and it's such an amazing... It's like when you see a great movie, and it just... It's just like the, the book of Genesis opens up like a great movie. It's like, bam, and you're off. It's just you're running through the pages of Genesis. It's such a great story. Flawed, but heroes, and God continues to march through it. It's just a, it's a wonderful. You can almost have a Hans Zimmer, um, just a great sound a score behind that just going on. So we've gone through it, and it, as I said, it's like a great miniseries. But we start Exodus, and 350 years have passed since the end of Genesis till the beginning of Exodus. So there's a lot of time. What's been happening? Right? You don't realize this. You can do this a lot in the Bible if you're not attentive. You can turn the page, and suddenly generations have passed. You can go three verses, and it can say, after 60 years have passed, you know what I mean? Rachel and Isaac had a baby. You're like, What? Right? They cover a lot of ground. So we turn the page and 350 years have passed. And um, we now find ourselves in Exodus. So remember that Joseph ends off, Joseph dies, right? And everything was going well for the Israelites. He brought his brothers there. They started flourishing. The Pharaoh that gave such favor to Joseph, well, he dies. So now we've got a whole new cast of characters. So Joseph dies. The Pharaoh dies. The, the Israelites are multiplying like crazy. God is blessing them. A lot, a lot, a lot of Israelites. Well, a new Pharaoh comes in, and probably more than one Pharaoh comes in. It's been 350 years. Uh, a new Pharaoh comes in, and suddenly this Pharaoh comes to power, and he doesn't quite understand what's going on with those people over there. So let me read this. This is Exodus 1. It says this. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. Isn't that strange? It seems like the Egyptians kept track of everything and they wrote it on a wall somewhere. Wouldn't Joseph be somewhere on a wall? He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. Suddenly, things go sideways for the Israelites. Doesn't this happen to us sometimes in our life? A boss leaves. We've been having favor with a boss. Suddenly, another boss comes in. It's not so good. Another teacher, another coach walks in, and suddenly everything turns sideways for us. It can happen. And for the Israelites, it did, and quickly. So the Israelites find themselves as slaves suddenly. Think about this. 
The Egyptians overpower them and make them slaves. So they groan and groan under this. And they're like, God, please, what's going on? Can you save us? Now, remember, they don't have a Bible like we have. They have stories that have been handed down, what God did to Abraham. But they don't have something written down they can keep going back to. They're confused, but there is a God. We believe there is a God. And they're crying out to God year after year after year. Slavery, nothing changes. Isn't it something where life, life, you know, this feels like it came out of the blue for the Israelites. And for us, life can feel very random, doesn't it? We go through life. I mean, look at this. We had the virus and the worst or the most turbulent election year at the same time. Does that feel random? I mean, we go through life sometimes and we're like, I don't know, this college seems good. Guess I'll go here. I don't know, this house looks good. We start making choices and in our minds we're like, I don't know, I, I, I guess I'm praying. I'm but what we forget is that God is so involved behind the scenes. He's so big over everything that we think and we look back years later and you're like, it was you, you chose, this. you set this whole thing up for me to go to college. It was funny because Emma and I and Michelle just visited a college campus and this particular college, which is kind of leading the pack right now, um, came as a late notice. I just, I mean, we, we did all the other schools and they, we were scrolling down, I'm like, oh, look at this, bink, and now suddenly this school is, is it's just, it, God, and I'm gonna use the phrase that we heard at this school because they said that we like to bake the faith bake our faith into our academics. And I just love that term, but God is so baked into our lives. You can't, it's not separating. God is leading us even when we feel like we're floating around bouncing into things. And we can take confidence in this because he says that he's doing it. But it does feel random. But it leads us to our first point today, and it's this. God doesn't do random. There's no coincidences in this world. Trust the exactness of God. When you start seeing that we're running on a Swiss timetable, that God is taking his X-Acto knife and running it along the felt of, of, the, of his plan exactly like he wants, you can trust in that. But when we start looking at things as coincidence, like that was weird or that was random, suddenly you take God out of the picture and God's not in control. Because when you say things are random or coincidental, that means it surprised God or it came in through the back door and God wasn't aware of it. But nothing, there is nothing that God is not aware of. God doesn't do random. If you look through this book, you will see time and time and time again how God came at the last minute. Oh, God came in through this way and that way. You, there's people in this room who could tell stories of how God came out of the blue and God saved their lives or God came with a check or something came out of the blue. And it's living with that expectancy that God knows exactly where I am. I'm not afraid and he, I am a child of God. I am highly favored and he will provide for me or he will come and get me. I know that doesn't always come. That very rarely comes in the timetable that we want. Sometimes it comes in a package that looks differently than we were hoping for. But it's not random. The Israelites cried out year after year, but they saw no change. Year after year. We're talking a long time. They were being beaten and whipped, and they, were, they built two giant cities that are still in Egypt today. They saw no change. God, please come. God, please now. God, please come. Nothing. Does this sound familiar to you? Has there been stuff that you've been putting before God for a long time and you see no apparent movement? So I, 
and you feel like you're in bondage in some ways, you're just like, God, would you change this situation and nothing changes. And this is fertile ground for the enemy. Because when it feels like it is a silence from God, the enemy comes in behind it and says, see, you did something. That's what he says to us. You did something. That's why. God can't take your addiction anymore. God, you said sorry to God enough. But what the Israelites didn't know and what we forget is that God was working. So much of what God does, I mean, so much of what God does is done behind the scenes. He's the greatest stage manager. The curtain is closed, you see the actors out here, but behind the stage there's a lot of stuff being moved around for the next scene. If you've ever been backstage, it can be chaotic. There's scenes being put in place, there's stuff swinging into place. There's, if you're doing a middle school show, you've got Kids running around without their pants on. It's crazy. <laughs> Telling us they don't know where their prop is. And I'm like, I don't know where your prop is either. <laughs> but it can be a little ludicrous and crazy. But if there's always something going on behind the curtain. God is always working. And God was working. God did hear. It says that over and over in Exodus. God heard the people groaning. Not for one moment did God not see and his heart be breaking. And the amazing thing about the whole thing, what the Israelites did not know, was that God had this whole entirety of this trial mapped out before the world began. He even told Abraham before, hundreds of years before. Listen to what he says to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. God knew this was coming, and he knew the length of it, just like he knows the length of what you're going through, what you've been asking God. There is an end to it. God knows. He says over and over and over again, ask me and I will answer you. He says that. And if I don't, you, if I don't answer in your time, you keep on asking. How many times does David says, I'm going to ask and I'm going to expect? He was expecting. Listen to what it said. Now, listen. it's the amazing thing about the exactness of God and we can trust that nothing is random. When God finally moved the Israelites out of Egypt, listen to what he says. This is in Exodus. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's forces left in the land. Doesn't that sound exact to you? That night had been reserved by the Lord to bring his people out from the land of Egypt. Reserved. Held. Kept. Known. It's not random, it's not some time, it's that night we are leaving. And not the most powerful army on earth could hold them back. There are things in our life that God has says, when this moment comes, we are leaving, or we are moving on. We are doing this, that, and the other. Change will come. And there is nothing anyone can do. God is the one who opens doors, God is the one who closes doors. Especially in this time of crazy pandemic and people have lost their jobs, God opens and God closes, but God provides. It's interesting. I just want to say this in passing. If you look at the very first chapter of, of Matthew, the very first chapter of Matthew has always been weird to me because um, Matthew, he's a tax collector, so he loves numbers. 
But he, um, he starts it off by the first uh, 17 verses are Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father. goes on for 17 verses. And like 99% of the people that read this stuff is like, okay, can we get to the story? I really don't. I, what? Okay. What is this? How does this help me? He, Matthew's probably thinking, I text this guy. I got this guy. I text this guy. But it's interesting. But then listen to verse 17. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to King David, 14 from David's time to Babylon's exile, 14 from Babylon exile to the Messiah. You know what this means? I don't know. I really don't. But what it, what's exciting about this is it sounds exact, doesn't it? 14 generations from here to here, 14 from here to here. It's not random. People aren't just having babies willy-nilly, 14 from here to here. God has everything timed. It's a Swiss train. It's working. It seems and feels random, right? You think that dictator came to power in, in the Middle East. How this, you know, what? God is in charge. He's in charge. Nothing happens outside of his knowing. Psalm 75 says this, no one on earth can raise another person up. He decides who will rise and who will fall. He decides, right? You think, well, this campaign has a lot more money. They, that's how they came to power. Nope. God opened the door. I don't care what you think about whatever administration has ever gone before. God allowed that person to be in power. The guy over in North Korea, God allowed that. What's going on in the Middle East? God allowed that. I'm not saying that he, is, that he is for that. I'm saying he knows about it, and it's him that says yes and no. That kid on America's Got Talent that suddenly became famous and now is a whatever, 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 God opened those doors. God says, it's not random. Psalm 56 says this. Listen to how personal this is. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. The enemy doesn't want you to read that verse in the middle of what you're going through. The enemy wants you to think you're alone. You're not part of this story. He wants to fray you apart from this. God was working behind the scenes with the Israelites, and he's working behind the scenes with you. He is. So the Israelites multiplied. The more the Egyptians crushed them, the more they had babies. Uh, so the Pharaoh was like, this ain't working. So he put another edict in place, a much more severe and frightening one. He says, from now on, any baby boy that's uh, born, I want you to throw him in the Nile. Think about this. This is done thousands of years before this happened again in Bethlehem, where King Herod did the same thing. He says, take the boys and, and kill them. Well, God was working in that moment as well. A couple, a man and a woman, had a baby, and they didn't want to turn this child over. Something special was called on this, so they hid the baby. But at three months, the baby's getting a little loud now. So they think, okay, here's what we're going to do. They hatch a plan. We're going to make a wicker basket. We're going to coat it with pitch. We're going to put the baby inside. Miriam, you're going to walk down here. It's like a little, they're drawing up a football play in the dirt. This is what's going to happen. You're going to go along. So they go and they put the little baby in, Moses in. They set it upon the reeds. We always think that it's traveling down, you know, the King, what's the movie, the animated movie? Steven Spielberg made the Egypt. What is that movie? Huh? Prince of Egypt, right. This is a long, dramatic thing, baby alligator snapping at it. No, it just says he set the baby in the reeds. Um, Spielberg should have wrote the Bible. So, um, so the baby's set in the weeds. The pharaoh, a pharaoh's daughter comes out, 
is, is uh, washing herself. She sees the baby. Suddenly her heart, and Miriam jumps out and says, hey, you, uh, I notice you're half naked. I can take this child for you, and we can wean it, if you like, or we can, we can raise this child. And Pharaoh's daughter was like, that's fantastic. Why don't you do that? Bring the child back to me. So Miriam's like, yes, takes the baby back to Moses' mom. And then she raises Moses, right? The weaning in Hebrew time was about three years. So for three years, uh, mom and Moses are together. And think about what was going on with the mom. It's every morning that she's weaning the child and she's growing closer to the child. And yet in her mind, she's thinking at some point, I have to give this child away. This leads us to our another point, the second point, the power of letting go. You know, here's a thought that never occurred to me. And the thought is this, Moses would never have become Moses if his mother had not let him go. Moses would never have become Moses if his mother didn't let the most precious thing that she felt she should let go of, let go. You know that she's thinking, if I could just, maybe I can hatch a plan where I can get leave with the child and run away. I don't have to follow through with this. But something inside of her said, there is something greater. You're part of this story. And she opened up her hands and let go of something so precious. And there is a power in that. There's a power in that, but it's not easy. It's not easy when God tells us to let go of something that is very, very precious and seems counterintuitive to us because we hold on to it out of fear or out of anxiety. I can control this situation. If I just make this work, I can do it. But secretly, sometimes God can be telling us, you need to let this go. You need to let this go and let it go. Yes, but God is my business. Let me have it. It's my marriage. Let me have it. It's my health. Let me have it. We hold and we clutch and it does nothing but tension. It's nothing but anxiety for us. We feel God asking us to take a giant step of faith, right? Sometimes we do, to let this go. You can't possibly be telling me to do, we start, we start putting God through our logistics, what we can see, which is nothing as human beings. We see five minutes in front of us, yet we think we can talk to God. You can't possibly want me to make that choice now, to sell my house now in the middle of a pandemic. That doesn't make any sense. That's not good for me to do this with my financial right now, the way the stock market is. And we start becoming God. We start holding on and God's saying, let it, let it go. Just let it go. But there is a great fear, as with Moses' mom, of, of letting something go and, and the, of what happens on the other side of letting go. Because God so rarely tells us what's going to happen on the other side of faith, doesn't he? He just promises that I'll be with you. I will always love you and I'll provide for you. But he doesn't say it's going to be comfortable. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. But there's a fear of letting go. Um, in the movie Finding Nemo, you know, uh, Nemo, um, Nemo is the little fish and he gets lost. And then Nemo's dad, I can't remember his name, Nemo... Huh? Marlon. Nemo's dad, Marlon, and, and Dory go to look for Nemo, right? They can't find him, so they have to swim all the way to Australia. They don't know how to get to Australia. So somehow, inadvertently, they get swallowed by a whale. 
right? And so inside the whale, the cesspool of the whale, of course, Marlon, who is just this, this <laughs> anxiety-ridden dad, is sloshing around in the whale saying, we're going to die. This isn't going to happen. This whale's probably going to eat us. He's going to take us backwards. What he doesn't know, though, is the whale is actually taking them somewhere where they need to go. He can't see anything. He's sloshing around in the cesspool of what he can see. What he can't see in the bigger picture was the whale was saving him and taking him to where he needed to go, right? It's good. It's good when Pixar is telling us what's going on. So I want you to watch this scene because it's a good scene, and this is the fear of what happens when we're asked to let go. What is going on? I'll check. No, no more way. You can't speak well. Yes, I can. No, you can't. You think you could do these things, but you can't, Nemo. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <clears throat> I always love it when theology is taught to us by fish. <laughs> but think about what was said there. How do I know something bad's not going to happen? As he's looking into the, the gaping darkness of I don't know. And Dory, who lives in the moment, says, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe something real bad will happen. But Dory was ready to go where, where we were going. And what you didn't know was they were going... If he wouldn't have let go, what would have happened? I don't know. Yeah, he probably would have been eaten. Um, I want to read a quick story, very short, about the power of letting go. And it's from a woman who was a, uh, she, she was a missionary and her husband died of cancer and she was left with two children. And I want you to, to listen to this story, she says. I remember one spring when I was a widow, both of my children were facing excruciating problems. I would lie in bed at night, harassed by anxiety. Even though I prayed about their needs, my worries kept returning. Why was I so anxious? At the time I was afraid of being, at the time I was afraid of being a failure as a mother, my number one responsibility. I didn't have their father to share the blame with. I was seeking identity and successful performance. Listen to that. I was seeking identity and successful performance. When I, when I realized that, I prayed with new insight. I said, Lord, I confess my persistent anxiety and reliance on successful performance and the approval of others. Thank you for your forgiveness. The children are dedicated to you. Now listen to this. If their difficult experiences will glorify you, even if I seem to be a failure as their mother, you have my permission even if it means my appearing to the world around me as a failure, you have my permission. My gnawing anxiety evaporated. She let go of something that she felt God was asking her to let go of. She saw the darkness in front of her of 
Yeah, but what happens now? There is power in taking a step of faith in saying, if I'm embarrassed by this and God gets glory, then God gets the glory. If I get criticized for this, I'm doing my best to follow God, then I get criticized. But there is a power to letting go. Moses was raised an Egyptian for 40 years. So for 40 years, he grew up inside Egypt, right? The most powerful, the most uh, knowledgeable um, cult, uh, um, civilization on earth at this time. So Moses is getting a lot of teaching. He's very smart. Um, but somewhere, somehow inside of him, he knew that there was a call on him. I don't know how this is. I'm sure there's theories. But he knew that. There was a call on him. Because at some point, when he's 40 years old, he's riding around in his chariot, he sees two Hebrews uh, fighting, and of course, he, he says, well, I'm, I feel like I'm called to lead, uh, or to lead the Hebrews out of this. So he kills one of the Hebrews, uh, or no, kills the Egyptian who is harassing the Hebrew, and he stuffs him in the sand, poorly, I might imagine. He never watched CSI or any of these movies. And then he does a bad job of it, and then it's discovered, and then the Hebrews say the next day when he goes out thinking that things are going to be great now, they're going to see me stepping into my calling. The other Hebrews say, what, are you going to, going to you know, break us up now? Are you going to kill one of us now too? And suddenly he's afraid. He tried to step into his, his calling, which was a correct calling, but he did it without uh, the timing of God. The timing of God, which is so... Look at what's happening with the church. Look at how patient Chip and Bonnie have been, praying, praying, praying. When we're with God, things happen suddenly, don't they? But there is, a, there is sometimes the, the desire or the need to step out and do things my own way, because obviously God fell asleep at the switch. So Moses murdered the man to fulfill his call, and then he gets chased out of Egypt. He runs, right? He runs into the desert and just happens to find a well in the middle of a desert. And at this well, he just happens to find a woman who needs to be protected at that moment and needs her camel's water. Just happens to find that. She protects him. She goes back to where he's, that she's living. She, they get married, and the guy puts him to work as a shepherd for them, right? This just happened. This is all coincidence, isn't it? It's amazing how these things come together. In the middle of a desert, he finds a well. Think about that. If I dropped you in the middle of the Sahara Desert and started walking, and you would come upon the well. This is the exactness of God played out over and over again. Well, he's shepherds, right? He goes out and he's shepherd. For 40 years, he's a shepherd now. And all this time, every year passing, every year passing, the Israelites continue to groan and groan and groan and saying, where is God? Where is God? What they don't know is the Savior, the Rescuer, has already been dispatched and he's already coming. It's already happening behind the scenes. And for all you know and for all I know, the answer is already on its way for you. Right now, the answer is on its way. We don't know these things. We can just have to trust in the goodness of God. So this is our last point, and the last point is this. No take-backs. No take-backs. You know, we have no record of God speaking to Moses for 40 years. And Moses wrote the book. So you would think that if he spoke, he would have probably said something. So for 40 years, he sits in this slew of, I screwed everything up and this is now what my future is. 
in the insecurity of I let God down. Here was my calling, I screwed it up, and now I'm a shepherd. For 40 years this goes on, and there is no record that God ever spoke to Moses in that time. Ever. But God was about to do something that would shake the world forever. God was about to do something. I always, I'm always intrigued by the morning of. Because we see this with Joseph, or uh, yeah, with Joseph in the prison. He'd been in there for how many years? What was the morning of? What was Joseph's mindset the morning that the guy came down the hall with the keys? What did that moment look like? And what was the day like that Moses went out to take the sheep again and the bush was about to burn? What was his mindset? Was he just beyond it all? Or was he, did he feel something was coming? Because there's going to come a moment of a morning for you when that morning will change your life and the things you're praying for. When God finally says, today's the day, it's been reserved. But so God came looking for Moses. And remember that God's not looking for perfect. He's looking for available. Right? Remember that. He's not looking for perfect. He's looking for available. So God came to Moses and said, I got a job. I'm putting you back. God is restoring Moses, just like he restored Peter, just like he restored Mark, just like he restored David. He is in the business of restoration. Time and time and time again, we drop the ball. And time and time again, God comes back and says, all right, let's start over. Let's do it again. Let's get back on the horse. But Moses' insecurity was huge. Think about this. For 40 years, God isn't speaking to him. And he's sitting in the desert thinking there's nothing. So you think this is going to be undone in a moment? So God says to Moses, here's the job. I want you to be a part of it. And Moses keeps saying to him, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's beyond him, as is most things God comes to us with. If there's no room for faith, there's no room for God. Why are we surprised at this when God brings things across our path that are beyond us? And we say, well, I can't do that. And God's like, I know. That's where I come in. Right? Because if we could do it, there's no need for faith or miracle. But God said, I'm not done with you. And God is a pit bull when it comes to, I am not letting go on what I said for you. The words that leave God's mouth don't come back void. In Romans 11:29, it says, For God's call and God's gifts can never be withdrawn. The only thing that can short-circuit God is repeated unbelief. It's look with the Israelites. And even then, you're like, well, I've, unbe- I've, I've not believed in God. That's really the only thing that can short-circuit God. If you continually repel God by saying, I don't believe, 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 I don't believe. And they did that for 40 years. Have you done that for 40 years? I don't think so. God can take a lot of us pounding our fist into his chest. He can take it. But that's not what Moses was saying. Moses was saying, I am incapable of doing what you're asking me to do. And God says, I know, but I'll do it. Now, here's the interesting thing. I just want to end on a couple of interesting things. At some point in the argument, he says, okay, fine, I'll send Aaron. Aaron is your brother. He's already on his way. But Aaron, I believe, wasn't originally part of this mix. I'm not saying that he was, he was not going to be alongside Moses, but I don't believe that originally he was going to be part of the authority, that this is what God wanted initially. 
that he was supposed to, because Moses was going, or Aaron was going to be the mouthpiece now for Moses. But it was Aaron who got the Israelites in trouble when Aaron made the, the, the golden calf, right? It was Aaron that sent the Israelites down a wrong path. I don't believe Aaron was part of that, the authority, initially. And I also think it's interesting that when God gave Moses his marching orders, he says, here's what I want you to do, here's what's going to happen. And he says this, now go. That's it. Right? Moses is like, okay, what? You want me? It's like, think about this. It's like him saying, I want you to go to President Biden right now, and I want you to tell him that he's, you know, that he's wrong and that we're going to change the country, whatever it is. I just want you to do this. He's like, you want me to go to Pharaoh and do this, right? This is huge. But it took him three different times to say, I'm not going to do it until God said, finally, God said, put your hand in the cloak and the miracles start happening. But this, again, I don't think was God's intention or what God wants. God wants us to take him at his word. He doesn't want to have to perform signs and wonders every time he wants you to go and talk to the guy in the line at Starbucks or that you feel that you want to ask somebody to church. God's not going to make a rainbow happen over the house every single time. He doesn't want us to get used to that. God wants you to say, I am that I am. And that should be enough for you. I've proven it, right? But at some point in the argument, he does do the thing with the hand and the look at this, abracadabra hand, leprosy, the canes, the snake, look at all this stuff. I'm going on the road. You know, it's pretty amazing. But even in then, he struggles. But it, the point of that is that when God comes across our path and says, I want you to start a Bible study for your street, and you look at that and you're like, I can't, I'm not, I don't have anything hanging on the wall, no diploma on the wall that says I can do this. Why do we ask, why do we put God through the ringer so often with signs and wonders and not just say, okay, I'm scared, but okay. I think there's a lot of opportunities we as Christians miss because the window of opportunity stays open for only so long, right? And then it closes. God wants us to take him at his word. So let me end with this thought. What if today you are part of that group of people that have felt that you have, that you're not part of the story anymore? You're sitting on the fringes of things and you're like, I, I don't know where I fit into this story anymore. That you've screwed something up or maybe you don't even know Jesus. What happens here? What happens now? How do you connect, reconnect people back? And I think the most important thing is understanding and hearing the heart of God as you read through the Bible. Hearing how urgently he wants people to come to him. In Hosea 6.6, 6, it says this. It says, I don't want your sacrifices. This is God talking. I want you to know God. He's saying, in essence, I want you to know me. I don't care about what you do for me as far as, God, I'm going to go out and save the world. That's great. But that is a byproduct of knowing God. It is an understanding that the creator of the universe sees me individually and loves me and just wants me to know him. Starting there, starting the understanding that I'm seen and that God loves me changes everything. Let me just read one more thing, and we're done. Isaiah 55, listen to these words. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. 
Come and take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that doesn't do no good? Listen, and I will tell you where to get food that is good for the soul. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, for the life of your soul is at stake. I am ready to make an everlasting covenant with you. That is what God says to us today. I am ready to make you part of the story, to let you see how you're already entwined with it. If there is a young person in your life, pray for them, but tell them how they're part of the story. Tell them, invite them to church. Don't take it for granted because they're in a Christian school or they're in a Christian college that they'll be fine. The enemy is, is on the prowl. God is bigger and God is stronger, but we need to be standing in the gap. We are um, bustling our way through um, the Bible, and we're now into Exodus. So next week, we'll go a little farther with Moses. But I hope that something we said um, today will land with you. Remember this. You don't have to do this perfectly. The burden of what you're doing right now, you don't have to do this perfectly. God knows what we're made of. The first point was what? My first point. Huh? God's not random. Right, God doesn't do random. <laughs> I think of God doesn't do random. That's the first thing. Remember that today or this week. The second point, the power of letting go. If God is nudging you to let something go and your hands are just white knuckled, let it go. And the last, there's no take backs. If God has spoken over your life, God's going to do what he's going to do. It might take a long time, but he's going to do what he's going to do. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. And we thank you that there's no take backs. We thank you that you are so in love with people. It takes us a moment to get irritated with our neighbor, but God, somehow you are madly in love with us, quirks and flaws and all. God, I pray as we leave this room today that we would carry with us the knowledge that you are looking at us and you hear our, pray, our prayers and are begging for you to move on a situation and that you are good. We praise you, Father, for what's going on in Life Church. that you are ahead of us, you're behind us, you surround us. We thank you for our families, and we pray for the young, young people in our lives, our daughters, our sons, and the young people that are in our, just in our field of vision. God, we pray for them. There will be an outpouring of your spirit. You've said that. It's coming. The entire world will know and have the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We praise you, Lord Jesus precious, powerful name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. Amen.